Today we're back in John 17, which, uh, my opinion, is the most glorious chapter in all of Scripture. It's really three parts. Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his, his disciples, and then he prays for all believers. This is the, as Josh has said, it's the crescendo of his farewell discourse. He's comforting his disciples, knowing that he's leaving them. He's leaving this world, those that he was beside teaching, ministering to, and in his impending death, he's the one comforting them. We see the heart of Christ in the heart of the Father, all coming together, and Christ is pouring out to the Father on our behalf, petitioning for us. You see the love of the Father and the Son being redirected at us, this great love that they both have for us, which was from before the foundation of the world. Today we're going to finish up, Lord willing, the, the prayer for the disciples, this part of his prayer. And his disciples are with him. He goes through this discourse, and they're obviously probably in awe. They're a little scared. He's promising them joy. He's I want you to have my joy. Please take my joy. Does it three times. And they witness this high priestly prayer. This genuine prayer. We think of prayer. We, we like to read the pen prayers that people have written. Some of the, the great theologians. And they're great, no doubt. But my goodness, if you want to see a heartfelt prayer. And one that was for you. You read John 17. I was completely blown away the first time I ever read it as a believer. And it never gets old. As we dive in today, we'll be in verses 13 to 19. And we'll try to sort it out as best we can and give honor that is due his name this morning. If you all stand with me, if you're able, as we give honor to the word of God. These are the words of Christ to the Father. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by truth. Merciful Father, as we come into your presence this morning to render the worship to your name, as we expound this text together, as we glean from this prayer of Christ to you, this prayer that was on our behalf, 
Let us not take it lightly. Let us glean from it. Let it be manifest in our lives, your purposes for us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. All God's children said. Amen. So this is a reiteration of verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them. Keep through your name those whom you have given me that may be one as we are. The things spoken as in while here on earth, he's praying for his disciples to have the fullest measure of his joy. I want them to have the joy that we shared before the world was. Is the third mention of his joy this evening. Chapter 15, he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may, be, may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 20, Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. No one will take that joy. His son is the joy perfected in Romans 8. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it? he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of the hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Christ's intercessory work brings peace. A peace that the world cannot bring. It's unavailable. It brings joy. He's constantly making intercession on our behalf to the Father. Continually, right now, making intercession for us on our behalf. His disciples were hearing Christ pray that they may have his joy. They may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. They're hearing that. They just heard him pray to the Father to keep them because he was going home soon. John 10, 10, he he desired a more abundant life for his disciples, for us. John 11, 25 and 26, he promises eternal life that they may have joy. The word here used, my, my joy, is personal and possessive. It is his, not everyday run-of-the-mill happiness like we find joy in some things that are temporary, um, you know, we have hobbies that bring us joy. Um, I like hiking. It's, it brings me joy. I get out in nature and 
enjoy God's creation, but it's, it's his joy, the joy of Christ, personal, his own personal joy, the joy that was set before him in Hebrews 12, the joy that was brought from redeeming a people unto himself. His joy is in us, redeeming us. In the internal purposes of God, joy. A joy that came from perfect obedience to the Father. In 2 Corinthians. Four. 17 and 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things not seen are eternal. Eternal joy. Joy in his eternal glory, the eternal truths that he spoke are the source of our joy. We have the words of Christ. We can see his prayer, a source of joy, a source of comfort. I have a, a gentleman that I've been ministering to for maybe close to two years now. He's miserable. Can't seem to not be miserable. And at some point, you have to ask yourself, where is your joy? You're looking, you're looking for joy in the wrong places. It's what the world does. Every little sparkly thing that the world goes after, it, seeking some kind of Satisfaction leaves us empty. If you're miserable all the time, you've got to ask yourself, where is your joy? What are you placing your faith in? Is it things of the world or is it things of God? That's what brings ultimate joy. So what are these things that Jesus spoke into the world? He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Your, capital Y, is in the Father's message. It's the message of the Father. Hebrews 1. One through three. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the times past, the fathers and the prophets, as in the last day, spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things set in the world by, of his power, that he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who did he speak through? Christ. Prophets spoke beforehand. Christ is the ultimate prophet. The message rejected by the prophets of old, which was rejected by the, the people in Christ's day. They hated him. They ultimately killed him. The world's hatred is now directed at us, his, his, his children, the ones that he had died for, the disciples, more specifically in this day. The holy values we receive from God are, are a threat to the world. They don't like it. We're Christians, little Christ. The world hated Christ. Is that he's going to hate us? In John six twenty or Mark six twenty, I'm sorry. Uh, Herod was afraid of John because he was holy and could not be swayed. 
He didn't like him. Not, not far down from there, that's when Heroditus, is that how you say it? Called for his head and he was killed. He was murdered. He didn't want to do it. They hated and killed Jesus. They would later hate and kill his disciples. It still happens today in some parts of the world. We hear of persecutions. We hear of killings, and especially in Middle Eastern countries. We're a threat. And you got to ask why. Why, why the hatred? Well, one, we're no longer of this world. We're pilgrims passing through just as Christ was a pilgrim. He had no place to lay his head, the scriptures say. We're hated because he's hated. We're bad for business. We rely on God's protection, as promised in Hebrews 1, ministering spirits for those who inherit salvation. We have ministering spirits Right now, persecution is always, always under the permissive will of the Father. <laughs> Look at Job. If you consider my servant Job, uh, it's only because you're protecting him. Okay, I'll withdraw my protection. Have at him. What did all Job's friends do? It's because of your sin. You're some kind of great sinner. And his wife. Probably a good idea to curse God and die. That's probably what you ought to do. Did he? No. Do you imagine the people around him seeing him go through that and then he still praised God in the end of it? We learned a lot from that. Where were you? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did all these things? So in light of him leaving this world, the Father says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. John 16, Jesus promises tribulation. We're going to have troubles, and this flies right in the face of the prosperity gospel. He said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Romans 8 says we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. James tells us to be a friend with the world as an enemy of God. You can't, can't have it both ways. John says in 1 John, 2.15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So then you got to ask, do we need to separate ourselves from the world? It's a big no. You know, all these monasteries and what have you, it doesn't work. We're to be in the world but not of the world. We must associate with unbelievers. We're all salt and light. We expose evil. We preserve. If Christians were taken out of this world, the world would be done. You understand that? We're not of this world pilgrims like Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians tells us. Let's look at that, 2 Corinthians 5. 
Verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As through God we're pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And then the message right afterwards, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. We're ambassadors to the gospel. Those two verses right there, back to back. So what does it mean to be kept from the evil one? In short, it's to be uncorrupted by the world system, which is Satan's. We're easily led into materialism. You see it, you know, churches measure success by numbers. You know, that you've heard me tell of the church in, in Bristol, and you drive by, they had a, one of those marquee signs, and it said, praise God, X number of souls saved so far this year. And they put it up every year. And I don't know their heart, and I don't know that they followed the 51 people that were saved that year to make sure that they showed fruit of salvation, that they like to get them in, get them saved, get them out, get that ticket punched, and they can say, praise God, we, so many souls were saved this, this month or week or this year. It's materialistic. How much money is in the bank? How much money does the church have? You know, the, the big coffers. Or how ornate or nice or big is the building? People in other parts of the world sit, sit in scorching heat on wooden benches or whatever they can find to hear the word of God preach. And not only for an hour, like we're ready to get out of here and get some lunch in 30 minutes, but they sit there for hours all day just to hear the word of God proclaimed. We're spoiled in America. This building has its problems. We were talking about it before church. It's not perfect. But we've been blessed with it. We have air conditioning right now. And some other guys are going to stay after church and work on it a little bit. It's not perfect, just like we're not perfect. The glory of God dwelt in a tabernacle in the middle of a desert during the Exodus. A tent made of animal hides. And the glory of God resided in that. And we have a building. Reverence to God is diminished by this world system. There was one church. They've changed the sign now, but I can't not say the church's name without making <laughs> light of the situation. But I drive by it every day on the way here, and it, it had Christ in all lowercase letters and fellowship in all capital letters. I didn't call them and raise a stink or say you're diminishing the glory of God, but what it really does is what does it put the emphasis on? Is it Christ or is it fellowship? Which is it? Christ is sold as a commodity, his health and wealth and products. And Francis Schaeffer said the average evangelical Christian desires peace and enough money to enjoy it. James Montgomery Boyce, Boyce <laughs> quoted a newspaper cartoon that said uh, it was two pilgrims coming across the Atlantic 
on the Mayflower, and one says to the other, religious freedom is my immediate goal, but uh, long term, I'd like to get into real estate. <laughs> How true it is. It's, it's gimme, gimme, gimme. You know, you see cars, these big fancy cars. I've never seen a big pile of junk car with a tag that said blessed on it. I haven't, but you see like these big fancy cars with a, a sticker or a tag, you know, hashtag blessed, you know, or well, and maybe they are, I don't know. The funniest one I saw was a, a personalized tag that said man of God on, on a Mercedes. And I was like, cool. All right, you know, I don't, I don't know the story. But it seems to be, it's, it's consumerism. Sell enough of Jesus to, to get you in the door and then pick your pockets. It's a lot of this. It's, if, you, if you hear somebody say, so that seed of faith, put your hand on your wallet. Because that seed of faith is your money. This is the prosperity gospel. This is things of the world. This is, being, this is things that Christ is praying that we be kept from. The evil one, the evil world system. We don't need to conform to the ways of the world. I, don't, I think it was our old pastor that used to say this. He might have been quoting somebody else, but he said, if you want to see the church in seven years, look what's going on in the world right now because it's creeping in continually. I don't think it's seven years. It's almost seven months, it seems. It's getting faster and faster. The church is to never entertain things of the world. It's, it ceases to be the church at that point. If we're, if we're given honor to, to materialistic things or we're focusing on materialistic things and not the word of God and loving each other, you're not a church. You're not a true church at all. Paul Washer, and I'm, this is verbatim and I haven't heard this in a while, but he's, he said that, that the king leaves his bride in the care of, of pastors and that they, this is symbolic, and, and they, they, the, the, the land was getting bored with the queen, or, the, the, you know, the bride, the queen. So this king left his queen, the bride, which is the church, and they're getting bored with her. So they dressed her up. They put this, you know, scantily clothes on and, and put makeup on her and dressed her up like an average woman of the world, you know, that, that has, is nothing like what the queen or the bride of Christ would be. And he says, do you think that Christ is going to be satisfied with what you've done to his bride? And the answer is no. We've corrupted her. Not all of us. We're try Some of us are actually trying. And churches can and do influence in society, and we can't be conformed to it. And the big question is why? So they, us, the disciples here, verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So they, us, are not of the world. The reality is that Christians influence the culture when they are the least like it. And one, one instance of that in Scripture was Daniel and, and his, his friends. And they were thrown in the midst of this pagan culture. It was quite the opposite. They didn't say, well, when in Rome. They didn't, they didn't have that attitude. And it was obedience that the word to the word that they were, they were made, that they had made such an impact. It started with food regulations. They, they preferred to eat what was biblical, and, and, and the, the text records that they ended up being healthier than the people that just ate whatever. They ate what was allowed 
according to the law. They didn't bow to this golden statue that, was, that everyone was commanded, and they were thrown into the furnace, and God delivered them from that. Prayer was forbidden, and Daniel prayed every morning, noon, and night, according to the song. Thrown into the, so he's, he's thrown, thrown into the lion's den and delivered. It says God shut the mouths of lions. They, they didn't do anything. So Daniel's obedience brought glory and honor to God, even though the people that it brought the glory and honor to God, they hated him. They didn't like it. testimony to God's truth on full display. This is what my God says. This is what I'm going to do. And apparently there's nothing that you can do about it. That wasn't his attitude, but there was nothing they could do about it. Someone had posted on Facebook, they were looking for something and an an atheist um, lady that we know (laughs) recommended us, said they're good Christian people. So I got on there right away, and I said, there is none righteous, not one. No, not one. I said, don't ever say it. No, I didn't say it. So (laughs) that's what I thought. I did think it. I did. But but she remembered, and and she, she equated that to me treating them with respect. She equated that with me treating her friends with with something that was called, that was greater. I was called to do better. Than, than the average person. And I want to do better than, than what the world offers, obviously. And she recognized that. So we embrace this God's truth, his absolute truth, his wisdom, his ways. It gets the attention of the world, even, even the atheists. I have many friends that are atheists. And they, I think any of them know that I would, I would fight a bear for them. And they, they, they do seem to have this respect, and I don't, it's not for me. They, they see something in me, and I'm hoping that one day that, that the light of Christ will shine in their hearts. The world teaches subjectivism and chaos. The wisdom of God is absolute and orderly. These, these things, they don't mesh. They don't go together. They cannot. In verse 17, it says, Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. I think that's my... My favorite verse in chapter 17. Sanctify, hagiadzo, in the Greek, to separate from profane things and dedicate to God, purify, cleanse, flee from guilt of sin, purify internally, renewing the soul. That's Strong's definition. Sanctification is the process of making us holy. It is the process of making us like Christ, continually being sanctified. Everyone's at a different level of sanctification. Some people are further along. Some people are not. We have to remember that. So y'all be patient with me. We'll ultimately be glorified or sanctified in in death. We've been sanctified. We're being sanctified continually. In death, we'll be glorified or we'll be made completely like Christ. Full sanctification. By your truth. by your truth. The world's standard of truth is inconsistent at best. The world tells us, find your truth, search out your truth. 
whatever makes you happy is true. Well, some people are serial killers and they find some enjoyment, apparently. Is that true? That that's okay? The things that were considered mental illnesses, you know, six, seven years ago are, are normal and it's just someone's truth. We, we have to accept that so-called reality. This is my truth. You must submit to it. In the next chapter, Pilate, standing in, in front of Christ, has the, has the audacity to ask him, what is truth? And it's seemingly sarcastic. But I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he just doesn't understand. I don't know. The irony of it is, it is crazy because you ask the truth what the truth is. The truth is standing right in front of you. There's no my truth or your truth or Richard's truth or Josh's truth. It's, it's the truth. There is one truth. God is the author of truth. He's the standard of truth. There's no other truth. It's like a Psalm 33. Verse 4, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. His work is done in truth. True truth. The world, you can look, I think it's philosophy.com, I mentioned it last week, that he says, all truth is relative. <laughs> and that's an objective claim. It's, it's, it's saying if you say all truth is, is relative, you can't really say all truth is relative. You, could have, you would have to say some truth is relative because all Jeff, truth cannot be relative, objectively speaking. Objective truth is foundational. God's truth is objective. This is the standard. This is by which all truth is measured. It's insanity. I picked up a book on truth. <laughs> One time, and it, it, the first, first little bit of it was, it was going on, it was great. It was like, truth is the greatest thing that anyone could ever know, that anyone could possibly possess. It's just amazing, and, and, and you, it's the greatest thing you could ever know. And it was like three pages later, it says, but no one can actually know the truth. <laughs> I didn't buy it, obviously. <laughs> I thought... I would expect somebody to shoot me if I wrote a book like that. Like, what are you thinking? And Josh hit me over the head or something. God is the foundation of truth. There's no truth apart from it, like I said. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, a truth, and a life, like Oprah would have you believe. There's many ways to God. Jesus, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The word is truth. Ephesians 5. Husbands, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he, Christ, might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Cleansing us with the word, washing us. We're his bride, sanctifying her, us. 
what? The word. When I'm grouchy, I get all irritated. Sometimes I call Josh, and he leads me into a conversation about the scriptures, and it almost doesn't even matter where he starts. He starts washing me with the word, and then by the time we get off the phone, I don't even know what I was mad about. Jesus held the scriptures in high regard, in the highest regard. He saw the Old Testament was the word of God. Matthew 15, 6 speaks of the commandments. Matthew 22 speaks of the resurrection spoken of by God. It mentions Old Testament characters. Jonah in Matthew 12, Noah, Matthew 24, Moses, Mark 12, Abel, Luke 11, Lot, Luke 17. The Old Testament was fulfilled in him. His words were words from God. According to John 7, he says, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. The Father was revealed in the words of Christ. John 1.18, he was about to leave and told them that his word will be revealed in them. This is the disciples. In John 14.26, all things will be brought to their remembrance. The entirety of scripture is his truth. It's God's truth. It's Christ's truth. This is Christ pouring out his heart. Cleanse them with your truth, my truth, our truth. Your word. It's foundational. Christ. Was the exposition of the Old Testament. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All scriptures. Necessary for the believer's sanctification. We, We all. Learn from it and grow from it. All of it is necessary. First Peter. Two, two and three. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And indeed you have tested that the Lord is gracious. The milk of the word. Sometimes when we preach, we say we're breaking the bread of life. It's nourishment for us. We feast on the word of God. Psalm 119. Your word I have hidden in my heart. Verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word, the truth. Your truth I have hidden in my heart. It's the word of his grace that's able to build you up and to give you an an inheritance among the, the sanctified ones, according to Acts. The word of grace, the truth of grace. 
And then comes the commission here, previewed. In verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I, have also, I also have sent them into the world. As you sent me, Father, I sent them. I'm commissioning them to continue my work. I'm praying to you, Father, to protect them, keep them from the, the evil one. Christ committed to the Father, we are committed to Christ. We're the, sin, the ones sent into the world as the disciples are. Only saints are ready to be sent. Matthew 28, it's the Great Commissions. It says, go and make disciples. We're to make disciples. We can't, we can't separate ourselves from the people we're going to make disciples of. It doesn't work that way. Those that are transformed by, by God's grace, representatives of God's grace, hated by the world, just as he was hated. They would expose the gospel. Many would come to faith. You think these 11 men, and Paul later, are the foundation all of the true church of Christ's church the foundation of the Christian faith this night 11 of them they were scared their masters leaving hours from being killed and their master comforting them in light of his impending death. He says, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. That they also may be sanctified by the truth. Salvation is not possible apart from the finished work of Christ. It doesn't work that way. Sin must be dealt with. And Jesus is returning to that thought. He's setting himself righteously by obeying the will of the Father, by going to the cross. He's about to die. And often we reference uh, Abraham when, when he, was about, he was commanded to, to offer his son Isaac as, on the altar as a sacrifice. And then, then God stopped him. And you kind of look at Abraham, you know, he's, he's, he's in the faith hall of fame and, and, and it was out of his obedience that he was willing to do this. But God, out of his grace, stopped it because he, he had a better sacrifice. So Abraham's was out of obedience and the father's was out of love. I don't know that... I've ever thought about that until this morning. You know, we always think of the, it was a, a precursor to, to what God was going to do in the Son. And, but God did it out of love. Not, nobody told him, hey, hey, God, you need to go sacrifice your son. That'd be great. It was out of his great love. And then the Son, in full obedience, agreeing before the foundation, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, in full agreement, says, I'll do it. No one made him. No one said, hey, you should do this. It was part of his plan the whole time. 
to be on that cross while he, he was dying the most a- agonizing death that man could, could come up with. Um, crucifixion was the, the absolute worst way to die. It probably still is. At the same time, the wrath of the, of the Father being poured out on him on your behalf, he was taking the sin, our sin, on him. Jesus was the only person, like I said this last week, that he's the only person that ever lived that knew the wrath of the Father and still willingly took it. The most, it should be the most terrifying thing. We can't even fathom it, and Christ knew what it was like, yet still took it while taking upon himself the best that, that man could dish out. And in turn, we're we're sanctified by what? Those truths. How do we know those truths? His word. Jesus was praying here, always in the will of the Father, for those that were given. All that the Father had given him, he's praying for them, pouring his heart out to the Father in perfect obedience, a perfect prayer on their behalf, soon on our behalf. Love between the Father and the Son directed back at us. You understand that? Even his glory is redirected at you, his children. You're going to share his glory. It's your inheritance. Why? That your joy may be made full. I ask you, where is your joy? Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you so much for this glimpse into the character of your Son and you as he made petitions on our, ha- our behalf our ultimate joy for this eternal life it is the right to even know you and the son that you whom you have sent we ask we not take it lightly let us have joy let our joy be demonstrated throughout the world let the world see it and just ask about it let us be lights and salt in a dying world Father, we love you. We praise you. I've got your children said.